If you would take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere in front of you. Um, if you're using that Bible and you want to call out what page number it's on, that's fine with me because uh, I didn't happen to look before the service. Thank you, 59. Thank you, John. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 59. What we'll do is we'll read the whole of uh, chapter 18, and then we'll pray, and then we'll launch into seeking to understand what it is that God would have us hear. Exodus 18, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit of God says. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. How Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and in that he, in that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people, 
as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray this morning that you will plant your word down deep in us and that you will cause it to bear fruit, that you will open up our ears to hear and lead us in your truth. Lord, that you would show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart in this room and all who hear it, until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the New Testament, in in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus sends out His twelve disciples. They're to go to the Jews in various towns and He commissions them to preach His message about the kingdom of heaven, and He gives them power to perform miracles. But before He actually sends them, Jesus tells them that there are two basic responses that they will get. There will be those who resist them and refuse to listen, and there will be those who receive them and listen to their message. In other words, they'll come across clench fists and open arms. And that's the kind of thing we expect today, isn't it? This is what the Bible teaches us to expect. Clenched fists in response to who we are as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to our message, but also, by God's grace, open arms. And in the book of Exodus we actually find this happening. Israel has come out of captivity, and she started her journey in the wilderness. And at the end of chapter 17, last week, we saw the clenched fist of the Amalekites. The Amalekites wouldn't stand for them coming across. In Deuteronomy, when, when uh, Moses recounts this battle with the Amalekites, he says they didn't fear God. And so they oppose Israel, and they fight Israel, and and Amalek becomes a perennial enemy of God's people. But then in stark contrast to that, you turn the page and you get to chapter 18, and you go from the clenched fist of the Amalekites to the open arms of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Now, some will look at this. I mean, father-in-law happens over and over and over in this chapter, that, that relationship to Moses. People will look at this and they'll think, oh, this is, a, this is a chapter about Jethro. Somehow we've pushed pause on what's going on, and we're just taking a side note. Well, in some way, yes, but 
because the story of the people of God moving to the mountain does come a bit to a pause here to insert this little vignette. But this is not actually a chapter about Jethro at all. He may be all through it, but he's not actually the main character. He's not the one we should walk away from thinking about. We should walk away thinking about God. This chapter is a chapter actually about God. It teaches us that God, God is, God's deliverance is declared, and then God is glorified. That's basically what happens in this chapter. God's deliverance is declared, and God is glorified. And so that, those two phrases will be our headings. First, God's deliverance is declared. At the beginning of this chapter, Jethro's in Midian, and he's got Zipporah, Moses' wife, with him, and he's got his two grandsons. Now, in case you don't remember, back in chapter 4, Zipporah and their sons were actually with them. Uh, remember the episode? The Lord uh, was going to punish Moses because he had not circumcised his son. Um, but Zipporah intervened, and the Lord relented. Well, at some point between then and later, Zipporah and the boys are sent to Midian to be with Jethro. When they were sent, why, what was going on in Moses' mind when he sent them, we don't know. We just know they were sent. But here they are in Midian, and the news comes about what God is doing for Israel. And for Jethro, even his son's names would be constantly reminding him of the news that he's hearing about what God is doing. Because there's Gershom, Gershom, a stranger there. They were sojourners in Egypt. And then Eliezer, God, my God, is a help. God had delivered them from the sword of Pharaoh. You know, every time uh, Jethro calls the men from the field, every time he uh, says it's dinner time, every time he says good morning to them in the morning, good morning, Gershom, good morning, Eliezer, every time is a little reminder of what God has done for his people. Specifically, we see at the end of verse 4 what it is that Jethro had come to know just by the story of how these boys were named that God had delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So now Jethro comes with Zipporah and the two boys, and they come to the Israelite camp, and they send word. You don't just come into somebody else's camp if they don't recognize you. So they, they send word, hey, this is Jethro. You know your father-in-law. You better open the door. You know how you need to open the door for your father-in-law. And so your father-in-law and your wife and your two boys, and we're here. And so they greet one another, and they, uh, they do the traditional greeting. Moses bows down before his elder. They kiss. They catch up on what's going on. And then they go in to the tent. And once they're there, look what happens in verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. So he told them about the plagues. He told, them what, he told them what it was like to see the Nile turn to blood and the frogs swarm the land and the flies and the gnats and the hail and all of it. 
He told them about the dark night of the death of the firstborn and the blood on the doorpost. He told them how Pharaoh didn't just say, you're allowed to go. He kicked them out, and then he came after them. He told them, he told him about how they were pinned between the army and the sea, and God opened up the sea for them. And then the verse goes on. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. How the water had been bitter at Marah, and the Lord sweetened it. How there was no food, and the Lord provided it. Then there was no water, and the Lord provided it. Even to stubborn, wandering, grumbling people. This is Moses' message. And the focus is on the Lord. If you just look at the first eight verses, before we get to Jethro's response, because it's just going to keep happening, but if you look at the first eight verses, notice what Jethro heard in chapter 18, verse 1. He heard all that God had done for Israel. Why is Eliezer who he is? Because God delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And then just in that one verse, as the story is recounted, Moses tells him what? All that the Lord had done, how the Lord had delivered them. Moses' story is a story about God. The message is clear. God is the one who delivered His people. God had promised He would deliver His people, and God did what He promised to do. Just think back. God is the one who heard their prayers. God is the one who heard their wailing because of their suffering. God is the one who called and sent Moses. God is the one who sent the plagues. God is the one who distinguished between Egypt and Israel in those plagues. God is the one who provided salvation from death. God is the one who led them out. God is the one who opened the Red Sea. God is the one who closed the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army. It was all God from front to back. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You just remember that. The next time someone asks you why you're a Christian or how is it that you became a Christian, well, you know I'm a pretty smart fella and I figured out this and I figured out that and I figured I just couldn't do enough and I figured maybe Jesus could help me. So I went and found Jesus and he helped me. Oh, friends, no. If the running theme of the story of how you are a Christian, if the running theme is not all that the Lord has done for me, you're telling the story wrong because that's not what happened. You're not smart enough to figure it out. You're not, you're not clever enough to find Jesus. Jesus isn't hiding somewhere and inviting us to come and find Him. We were the ones hiding from Him, but He came and found us. It's all about God here. It's wonderful. The Exodus isn't a story about Egypt or Pharaoh or Israel or Moses. It's not about oppression. It's not about slavery. Exodus is about God. 
This is God's story, and this kind of retelling is exactly what God wants. His deliverance, His salvation is not meant to be kept secret. It's not meant to stay behind closed doors. It's not for a secret society. It's for public declaration. God's deli- in fact, back in chapter 9, verse 16, God says He's doing what He's doing so that His name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So that He would be the famous one in all the earth. He would be known. And that theme, that this is part of why God saves us, goes right into the the New Testament, doesn't it? It's not just about the Exodus. This is the kind of declaration that Jesus wants His disciples to make. He tells them in Luke chapter 24 that, that they are to go and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. They're to proclaim deliverance. In fact, Jesus, when He was in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, He says, He came proclaiming deliverance for the captives. And then in Acts 1.8, before he ascends, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in the very next chapter, the Spirit descends and enables the disciples to speak in tongues. And do you know what they say? They don't say a bunch of garbledygook. Do you know what they say in tongues? The crowd tells us, the crowd in Acts 2.11 says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Speaking in tongues was never meant to be an end. It was a means to an end. It was the means by which they proclaimed the God who had sent the Lord Jesus Christ. His mighty works. That's the focus. Because you know, as you go along in Acts, even though you'll see speaking in tongues some more, you know what it does? It fades away as the book of Acts goes along. But you know what never fades? The declaration of God's deliverance. The proclamation of the gospel. The promise of forgiveness and rescue and eternal life keeps getting proclaimed. Paul says that he was devoted to that declaration. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 2? I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And then he gives us his three-word mission statement in Colossians chapter 1. Him we proclaim. That's it. That's all I've got for you. That's what Peter said to the lame man, isn't it? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I freely give to you. And this is our task as well, isn't it? The torch of declaration has been handed to us to proclaim the deliverance from sin and death and hell, to proclaim the salvation of the Lord. You see, the Christian message is not about reforming morals. It is not about reclaiming government from one party or another. It is not about renovating culture. It is about a redeemer. You see, all of those messages focus on what people do, what they can do, what they should do, what they must do, 
However you spend them, those kinds of things are all about people. But the message of Christianity is not about what people must do. It is about what God has done. That is the message of the gospel. Does it have implications for your life and my life? Absolutely. But if every, listen, if every single person in the United States of America agreed with biblical ethics and morality, some who call themselves Christian would say, that's good enough for me. And they would split hell as wide open agreeing about this issue or that as they would if they were openly screaming in your face about this issue or that. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. And so ours is a message of God who finds us helpless and hopeless and trapped and dead. And He delivers us from sin and death and hell. And so that as individuals, what we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't walk around saying, well, this is my morality. This is what I think. Here's my opinion. That's not what we do. What do we declare? Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus. We're like the demonic man in uh, Mark chapter 5. You remember what he did after Jesus set him free? He begged Jesus to let him go with him. Can I get on the boat and go with you? And Jesus says, no, I only came over here to set you free. Now go tell people about it. And this is what he did. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. I wonder if we had a tape recording of our conversations that were in and around Bible material just in this last week how much of it would be about how much the Lord has done for us. I wonder how much it would be about how much you need to do. And how this is wrong. And look, there's plenty wrong in the world. Trust me. There's plenty of things from which we need to be saved. And we do not avoid speaking of these things. However, we don't need new positions on issues. We need new life from Jesus. And so as a church, God and who He is and what He has done for us in Christ must stay front and center in our preaching and in our teaching and in our encouragement of one another and in our counsel to one another and in our witness to the world and in our missions partnerships. Don't forget, if you're a member, we're having a brief meeting right after the service to, to talk about and, Lord willing, approve a new partnership in the Middle East. Why? To declare the deliverance of Jesus Christ. We proclaim all that the Lord has done. God's deliverance is declared. And then secondly, God 
is glorified. Look at Jethro's response in verses 9 to 12. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Moses declares God's deliverance, and Jethro responds by glorifying God. If we were to, if we can say it this way, he comes to faith. He's drawn to God. His heart sees what God has done, and he can't help but be drawn to him. And he glorifies him. Now, when we say to glorify God, we mean to honor him, to recognize his greatness, to elevate him, to lift him up, not to make him better than he is. That is a that's blasphemous way of thinking. God is, there is no higher, there is no greater, there is no more, more glorious. When we say to glorify God, it means we see him for who he really is. It means we actually see him for as glorious as he really is. We see him as awesome as he really is. We see him as great as he really is. And our lives are lived in response to that. That's what it means to glorify God. And that's what Jethro does. He calls him by the covenant name in verse 10, but then look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. That in itself is a profession of faith. This is the kind of glory that the Lord wanted and deserves. If you, just, if you were to go back and you were to start at Exodus 1 and you were to read all the way to here, probably I think I counted 14 or 15 different times, this notion of God doing what He's doing so that they will know. Chapter 8, verse 22, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. It happens over and over again, that you may know, that you may know. You shall know, you shall know. And what does Jethro say? Now I know. Now I know. This Lord is the Lord. He's greater than all gods. He's greater than the gods of Egypt. He's greater than the gods of Midian. He's greater than all gods. And that faith, Jethro's faith, glorifies God. There are actually four more here. I didn't even tell you we were going to do five. I was just going to drag you along. The second one is Jethro's joy. So Jethro's faith glorifies God. Jethro's joy glorifies God. In verse 9, on hearing all that Moses has said, we read, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. Now, the word for rejoiced here is actually very rare. 
but it is a, it's an overwhelming kind of joy. It is a deep joy. It's the kind of joy that burrows down deep into the core of your being, and it's not going to be dislodged from there. It hangs on tight. It's the kind of joy that only God can bring. It's the kind of joy Paul commands in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. In Psalm 13, David is in the depths of despair. He's not, he doesn't know how long this horrid event is going to go on, and yet he says, there's still reason to rejoice. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see, when our joy is rooted in who God is and in what God's done, rather than the circumstances we're in, then it cannot be taken from us. Cannot. You can hand it over, but it cannot be taken from you. And it's that kind of burrowing down deep and gripping your heart and not letting go kind of joy. That joy glorifies God because it points to God as the only one who can do that kind of thing. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. David said in Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, it's gripped him. And then there's Jethro's praise. Jethro's praise glorifies God. In verse 10, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. He, his joy cannot stay inside of him. You understand? It has to come out. Do you know that's true of you? We tend to talk about what we treasure. We tend to talk about what thrills us, whether it's a book we're reading or a video game we're playing or the accomplishment of some child or grandchild or a draft pick by the Pacers or the Colts or the decision of the Supreme Court. We tend to talk about what we treasure. We just can't help it. We get around people, we're in conversation, and it just comes out, or we just immediately jump on social media. I can't type that fast with my thumbs, but some people can. But that's what happens. C.S. Lewis talks about this kind of thing in his reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Joy just won't, real joy, deep joy, heart-clinging joy will not stay there. It will come out of your mouth. What, where do the words of your mouth come from, Jesus says? From your heart. If your heart is gripped by joy, the joy of knowing who God is and what God has done for you, you know what's going to come out your mouth? That very thing. The praise of God. That is why singing matters. It's not about melody and harmony. It's not about, uh, you know, uh, playing. It's not about talent or skill. It's, it's not even about the decibel level. But I will tell you, that aside, it not being about decibel level, one of my favorite things in all the week is to hear you sing, is to sing with you. I love it when the choir shows up. Some of you thought you'd never be in the choir, but you're in. You've been drafted. 
But the reason why our singing matters is because our hearts, we shouldn't love music so much we want to sing. We should rejoice in the Lord so much that we can't help but sing. That it just comes out. Our delight in God leads us to declaring God's greatness in song and in conversation. And anywhere else we get to express ourselves, that kind of praise glorifies God. The next thing, the fourth thing, is Jethro's inclusion. Look at verse 12. This is fantastic. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Jethro, Jethro offers a sacrifice, then he has a meal. But this isn't just because it's supper time and they're hungry. It's actually part of the worship. And, and, and the fact that these men eat together before the Lord point to the fact that Jethro is now included in their number. Yes, he's going to go back to Midian, but by faith he belongs with them. Think of that. He's a Midianite. You remember who sold Joseph into slavery to Potiphar? The Midianites did. Later in Numbers 25, God says, you can't just, you can't just put up with the Midianites. You've got to harass them. You've got to strike them down. Do you remember who Gideon fights? You remember who's on the prowl to attack Israel and God calls Gideon to defeat the Midianites? And here's a Midianite, an outsider, an enemy, one of them, one of those people. And he's included. His sacrifices are accepted. He's welcome at the table. The meal glorifies God. How? Because do you remember what God promised to Abraham? God promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And this little supper is just a glimpse at the fulfillment of that promise. The fullness of that promise is kept in Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus, Paul tells us, is for the Jew first, yes, but it's also for the Greek. And when we come to faith in Jesus, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we're not just reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another, believing Jews and Gentiles, saved by the same sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. We sit at the same table. We break the same bread. We belong to the same family. I mean, you remember growing up as a kid, you'd go to whatever relative it was for Thanksgiving, and you gloried in the day you no longer had to sit at the kid's table, right? You're at the big table now, You're at the big table with all the big people. Well, in Jesus Christ, there's no kids' table. There's no other table you have to go sit at. We all sit at the same table. Galatians 3, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no special status in Christ except that we're in Christ. That's it. That's all of us. 
This little act of breaking bread points to the fact that God keeps his promises. And that glorifies him. And the last thing is Jethro's counsel. Now you may be looking at the number of verses left and feel like it's quite a daunting challenge at this point. But we're not going to get into the details. My guess is if you know Exodus 18, the second half of Exodus 18 is probably what you've heard over and over and over again. And it's an important half of this chapter. It it gives us great insight into a number of things. However, actually I believe it fits right into the notion that God is glorified. God declarate God's deliverance is declared and now God is glorified. All right? Jethro's watching Moses do his work. Moses uh, hears the people's problems all day. He answers their question. He brings God's word to bear on individual situations. I actually think it's fair to say he's doing biblical counseling with people there. He's saying, this is how God speaks to your situation, to your situation, to your situation, and he calls them to do it. But he's doing it all by himself because the people want his time. They want him to answer. They want his answers. And Jethro thinks, this boy's going to burn out if we don't watch it. So he gives him counsel. Get qualified men and entrust the simpler questions to them and you take the hard ones. And then Moses takes the advice. Jethro goes home and the chapter's over. Now how does all that glorify God? It sounds like it's a manual of administration. Well, look at verse 18. First of all, what father-in-law hasn't said this to their son in verse 17? Son-in-law in verse 17, what you are doing is not good. All right, but we're going to blow right past that. We're going to go right to verse 18, all right? Uh, where Jethro says to him, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. You're going to burn out. It's too much for you. Don't buy into the demands of the people. What they need is God's word, not necessarily you. So really what happens is in the first, chap- first half of this chapter, we see the exaltation of God, clearly. And in the, second half, in the second half, do you know what we see? The humbling of Moses. Yes, he's the mediator. Yes, he's the leader. Yes, he's the one chosen and set apart by God to bring the people out of Egypt to convey God's law to them. But still, God is the only one who doesn't grow faint. God is the only one who doesn't get weary. Moses does. He's a creature. He's limited. He's human. He needs help. He needs help from God. I mean, Jethro says in verse 19, I will give you advice and God be with you. Then in verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. Moses needs the Lord. He needs help from the Lord and he needs help from others. God is glorified by this counsel because do you know what it takes to take this counsel? Moses to realize, I cannot do everything. I am weak. It takes Moses humbling himself, recognizing his limitations, his neediness. And friends, we need that same kind of humility, don't we? We can't go on thinking that we are indispensable to God's plans. Well, I've got to do this. I have to do that. 
I have to be there. I have to give the counsel. My opinion needs to be heard. I have to teach the class. I have to lead that. I have to... No, what we need is to agree with John the Baptist, don't we? And just say, I am not the Christ. I am, and I tell you, I, Toby, tell you, Gray Road family, I am not the hope of this congregation. We need to beware of thinking these kinds of things about us, and we need to beware of thinking these things about other people. We, we need to beware of our own tendency to be like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, say, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. These are my guys. That's my guy. I need to hear what he says. I've got to read his book. I've got to listen to his sermon on that if I'm going to know what I think about it. I've got to read that article by that guy. Now, we should be thankful For the ones God uses to teach us and lead us and counsel us and help us, we should honor them in the right way, but we must beware of making any single human being indispensable to our spiritual lives or to our church, whether it is a pastor or a teacher or someone else. That's why the New Testament actually teaches us. That's why this little little half of a chapter blossoms into the New Testament, into what we see as a plurality of elders, that these men together should lead and together should serve because no single man should be thought to be irreplaceable or indispensable. There is only one indispensable, irreplaceable shepherd, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of his church. He alone has saved us. He alone leads us through His Word and by His Spirit. He is the chief shepherd, and any other shepherds are just the underlings. We do His bidding. He is the one who leads. You see, God is glorified when we're humbled. God is lifted up when we bring ourselves down. So these five things, Jethro's faith, his joy, his praise, his inclusion, all all of the rest of the chapter just flows right to God. God is the one who deserves glory. God's deliverance is declared, and God is glorified. That's what this chapter's about. It's not about Jethro. It's about Jethro's God. In fact, the whole of the Bible is about God. It tells the story of God's deliverance of His people from sin and death and hell through Jesus Christ. And the good news for every single person here and for every single person who hears this is that God is still in the delivering business. God still delivers because sin and death and hell are still realities and He is still glorifying Himself by saving men and women. By saving boys and girls. Jesus has died and been raised from the dead to pay the penalty for sin, to conquer death, and to save us from hell. And all who come to him by faith will be delivered. Friend, have you been delivered? Or is sin still your master? The second death still awaiting you, and hell still your future. 
God still delivers today. Jesus said he will in no way turn anyone away who comes to him by faith. If you come to him by faith, you will be saved. For those of us who are Christians, who've been delivered by God, as we see in this chapter, the the logical consequence of God's declaration of his deliverance, of God's deliverance, is that God is glorified. That's That's our mission statement. We exist as a church to glorify God. You exist and have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus to glorify God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body so that whether you eat or drink or work or play or do whatever, because we've been delivered, we'll do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the deliverance that is ours in Jesus Christ. Sin held us captive. Death was victorious. Hell awaited. And you saved us. You have forgiven our sin. You have conquered death for us. And our hope is in heaven with you. How we praise you for that, Lord. How we thank you for that. I pray that you will help us as a congregation and as individuals to be committed to declaring your deliverance and to glorifying you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.